the old pilot's plain tales, fighting high demons. At six foot four inches, Flight Lieutenant Ted Powells was a bit big for a Spitfire. He had joined the Royal Air Force as an apprentice during the Second World War and then trained as a photo reconnaissance pilot. However, when hostilities ceased, he was given the opportunity to remain a serving officer and promoted to the rank of flying officer. In 1950, he was a bit surprised when he was posted to RAF Finningley to do a refresher course on the Spitfire PR-14 and then up to RAF Lucas to fly the PR-19 in both high and low altitude recce sorties. Someone obviously had a plan for him because after a few months he was posted out to the Far East to RAF Tenga in Singapore, to be precise. Here he performed PR sorties in Spitfire FR-18s as part of Operation Firedog, also known as the Malayan Emergency, which was the defence of Malaysia from communist guerrillas. Ted flew recce and strike sorties, but just before Christmas 1950, he was taken aside by his CO and given a rather intriguing assignment. Along with Flight Sergeant Padden, he was told to take a couple of Spitfires down to RAF Kai Tak in Hong Kong. There was no explanation of his duties. It was all a bit cloak and dagger. There was no official briefing. Powell's was quietly asked by a photographic interpreter if he could take some photos of the Chinese mainland and some islands. Under Mao Zedong, China was aggressively pursuing its objectives in Korea and elsewhere. The British commanders were concerned for the security of Hong Kong and other areas of interest in the region, so good intelligence was essential such as the state of play on Hainan Island, which had fallen into communist hands in the summer of 1950. So, without formal orders, written or otherwise, Powell's authorised himself and began flying sorties over Chinese territory in his Spitfire. After some 16 trips flown within about 100 miles of Hong Kong, he received his most difficult request. Did he mind having a go at photographing the island of Hainan, in particular the airfield and dock area? Hainan was at the extreme range of the PR-19, but after looking at the mission carefully, he thought it could be done. Because he was going to fly a total of around 800 nautical miles over the ocean, Ted asked if he might have the assistance of a US destroyer and an RAF Sunderland in case he came down in the South China Sea. Accurate weather forecasts were not easy to come by, but on May the 21st, 1951, he took off in his Spitfire, Papa Sierra 852, turned southwest and climbed up over the ocean. At 30,000 feet, the weather started off good, but he noticed the cloud building up to the west over the northern part of Hainan Island. He called Touraine, also known as Da Nang, on the east coast of Vietnam, beyond Hainan Island, pretending to be an American, asking for a weather report. 
This was a planned transmission intended really to inform his Sunderland and the destroyer escort that he was starting his photo run. He wasn't supposed to come below 30,000 feet, but he had to go lower to get into clear air. Turning his cameras on, he started his planned runs, but there had been a considerable growth in the size of his targets, and he realised he would need an additional run to cover the whole area. On this third run, he spotted the glint of the sun from a couple of approaching Chinese fighters on an intercept course from the north. Keeping an eye on the fighters, he patiently completed his final pass before opening up the throttle of his powerful Rolls-Royce Griffin engine and headed for home. Climbing up to 36,000 feet, he lost the Chinese fighters and once he was sure he was in the clear, he throttled back to an economical cruise. As he assessed his situation, he realised that his unplanned third photo run had left him worryingly short of fuel. He descended to a lower, more economic level and worked out that he only had five minutes of spare fuel. As he ate up the miles, the weather began to worsen and now in cloud he began to ice up. A further descent was needed to get out of the icing, which would further increase his fuel consumption. Finally, he came within range of Kai Tak and he obtained a steer towards Victoria Peak. With the overcast cloud only 1,800 feet over the airfield and running dangerously short of fuel, he started a continuous descent. A request for the closest runway, 3-1, was denied because of a strong crosswind and he was given the much shorter runway, 0-7. Overshoots on 0-7 were forbidden because of the buildings and mountains beyond but he was so short of fuel, he didn't think that was going to be a problem. With his fuel gauge resting on empty, he descended over Kowloon Bay, lowering his undercarriage. He was about to drop his flaps when his engine coughed and then failed, his propeller stopping dead in the air. He was completely out of fuel. Pals had kept a bit of speed and height in hand to dead-stick the aircraft, but even so, he realised he wasn't going to make the runway. With amazing skill, he eked out every ounce of performance from his beautiful Spitfire and made it as far as the grass in the undershoot. He bounced once and landed neatly on the runway. He'd been airborne for three and a half hours. Despite that desperately close call, a few months later, Ted was asked to repeat his feat and head off again for Hainan. He flew his favourite aircraft, Papa Sierra 852, and again the weather made his life difficult. This time it was the winds, as after he finished his runs over the island, he turned back into an unexpectedly strong headwind. Making his calculations, he eyed up his fuel gauge, and with 200 miles left to fly, he only had 50 gallons left. Carefully planning his approach, he positioned himself for runway 13 at Kai Tak, and for a second time, he sucked his fuel tank dry on final approach. With a little more height in hand this time, and with nothing but the whistling sound of the slipstream instead of the throaty grumble of his griffin, he safely made the runway, 
with enough speed to gently turn left and taxi off. By the end of 1951, Ted Powles had flown 63 photo-reconnaissance sorties over Chinese territory. Amazingly, he was given a special briefing for only four of these sorties, and each time he was reminded that he had no authority to carry out the flight, and that if anything happened, he was on his own. For these flights, Flight Lieutenant Powell's was awarded the Air Force Cross with the following citation. This officer, even when flying at altitude, often over the sea, alone in a single-seater aircraft, has always shown the greatest determination to complete his mission, although this entailed returning to base with his fuel almost exhausted. He has repeatedly earned high praise for his skill, courage, and high standard of airmanship. As nerve-wracking as his clandestine missions over China were, it wasn't this that brought Ted's career to an early close. It was a much more dramatic incident. It was now 1952, and Ted was conducting high-level meteorological missions to gain data on the upper atmosphere for the proposed Comet Jetliner service between England and Japan. He closed the canopy and switched on his oxygen before takeoff. Once airborne at 160 knots with 9 pounds per square inch boost at 2600 rpm over the colony of Hong Kong in a wide left-hand circuit, he climbed to 30,000 feet, noting the outside air temperature to be minus 30.20 centigrade. Continuing the climb in his powerful Mark 19 Spitfire, taking measurements as he went, he reached 40,000 feet, where the outside air temperature was minus 53.8. But he was disappointed that he had not experienced any turbulence or drift caused by high winds. The visibility was unusually good. There was not a cloud in the sky. By the time he reached 45,000 feet, where the outside temperature was minus 63.4, he had reduced his indicated airspeed to 140 knots. When Ted's altimeter indicated 48,500 feet, that's 50,000 feet true altitude, the temperature was minus 70.4, and his indicated airspeed was back at 120 knots. The controls of the Spitfire were very sensitive in the thin air at this altitude, and most of the time he was forced to fly on instruments. As everything seemed to be functioning normally, and as he had a little spare time, he decided to see if he could get the aircraft to 50,000 feet indicated. Increasing the Griffin's RPM to 2,700, he raised the nose of the Mark 19, reducing the indicated airspeed to 115 knots. To keep climbing, he eventually had to reduce the speed to 110 knots, and by the time he crept his altimeter to 50,000 feet, the airspeed was 108 knots, and the boost less than zero. The controls of the aircraft were now extremely sensitive, the nose was high and flying the Spitfire was a balancing act. He had to constantly make slight adjustments to maintain equilibrium. Ted described what he saw. 
The sky above appeared black, and the visibility was so good I could see from the Chinese island of Hainan to the southwest, all along the coast of China, to the island of Formosa. To the east-northeast, along Pearl River, the city and airfield of Canton appeared to be just under my starboard wing. The view was breathtaking. It was like a giant map, and I could see the curvature of the earth. I knew I was flying on the very edge of the performance envelope for the Spitfire, and I felt exhilarated and yet quite tense as I scanned my instruments for any sign of deviation from the norm. With the appropriate corrections applied, my Dalton calculator indicated that my true height was 51,550 feet. At the time, that was a world record for a piston-powered aircraft. He glanced into the cockpit, just in time to catch the cockpit pressurization red warning light illuminate. He knew he would have to descend quickly to prevent a dangerous and painful case of the bends. He instinctively eased the stick forward and pulled back on the power to prevent overspeeding the propeller. Ted looked around at the cockpit to see if the canopy seal had burst when the Spitfire started to shake. Glancing in, he saw his airspeed at 280 knots, well above the maximum speed above 40,000 feet. Pulling back on the control column, he was shocked to see his dive steepen, and the harder he pulled, the steeper it got. The spit was now shaking violently, and the instrument panel was unreadable. In a vertical dive, Ted was standing on the rudder pedals and the stick felt like it was stuck in concrete, completely immovable. He worried that if he pulled any harder, something would break. Beside the vibration, the aircraft was yawing from side to side. It felt as though a giant hand was shaking it. Ted thought that if he couldn't pull out of the dive, maybe he could trim it out. As he reached for the trimmer, he noticed that mist had formed over the wings and he wondered whatever might be causing that. Worried that the trim tabs might force the elevators into a position where they would fail, he remembered reading about a test pilot who had encountered a similar problem. He reasoned that he was close to the speed of sound and the centre of pressure on the wings had moved back so far that he was experiencing reversal of control. Taking his life into his hands, Ted tried pushing on the stick instead of pulling, reasoning that at the worst he might be able to bunt out of the dive. The Spitfire was thundering downwards like a runaway horse, but using both hands he began to push shouting at his aircraft to let go, let go, damn it, let go. After many long seconds, the vibration began to lessen. The yawing stopped and the mist cleared from over the wings. The nose was coming up, but as Ted felt the stiff controls start to move again and the controls began to free up, the nose stopped rising and began to drop again. So Ted immediately reversed the pressure and started to pull out. He placed his feet in the top stirrups on the rudder bar and began to heave out of the dive until he was in danger of blacking out, so he eased off. Having survived this far, he couldn't risk becoming unconscious. He checked his airspeed. He was still doing over 500 knots, and he was now down to nearly 3,000 feet. 
A look at his stopwatch showed that he had descended over 48,000 feet in less than a minute. His carburettors had frozen, so the only way to increase power was to up the boost, and his canopy was iced up and stuck in position. Finding it hard to see out, he flew back on instruments until his chilled aircraft warmed up. He hoped that he hadn't overstressed his favourite machine too much, little realising that he was the one most stressed. Climbing out, his flying suit was soaking wet right through to his May West. His gloves, even his socks, were dripping. His friends came running up, wondering what had happened as Ted stood by his aircraft as white as a sheet. He thought he might have gone supersonic, but it was later calculated that he had only reached an estimated but unverified 600 knots, which was around Mach decimal 96, but still an unbelievable speed for a piston aircraft. Ted carried on flying his high-level sorties, but he began to feel unwell. As he climbed into the thin upper atmosphere, he started suffering from flu-like symptoms, sweats and aches, and when he descended again, a feeling of euphoric relief would wash over him. The engineers checked out his aircraft and Ted went to see the medical officer, but neither his aircraft nor his body showed any visible problems. The strange symptoms he was feeling became more severe and started happening at lower and lower altitudes, but nobody really had any idea what was happening. Ted knew nothing about psychology, and the medical officers didn't seem to either. It became increasingly hard for him to complete his missions, and Ted realised it was time to quit flying. He was given a complete medical examination, and it was discovered that the sight in one of his eyes was below the required level, so his medical was quietly downgraded to let him work behind a desk until he retired from the Royal Air Force. In later life, with his wife, Dr. Marie Powles, he moved to Arden, North Carolina, where he passed away in 2008.